0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Risking Failure. This is Mick Dunn and I have a cold and I'm buried in snow in Maine and on the other end of the line is my good pal Mark Dobson. How are you, buddy?
1: Oh, mate, I feel physically fantastic. It's (laughs) sunny here. People keep telling me how good I look with my tan. (laughs) I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for asking.
0: At least I'm in Winter Olympics mode, so that's a good thing. The snow abounds everywhere. It's a different experience watching the Winter Olympics in the snow, so it's good
1: shoveling it not too exciting so it's an olympic sport you made a good decision to go and live in the states for all those cold winters like it's hard because i did endless summer for 10 years i'd go to the american summer and then back to the australian summer for 10 years and when i finally had a winter i looked in the mirror one day and i looked so sick i realized it was because i didn't have a tan it was the first time i'd seen myself with dark hair and pale skin for nearly 10 years i was going to the doctor going what's wrong with me Goes, you need a spray tan, <laughs> you'll feel better. So, um, okay, so last week, right? Well, a couple of things. But one of the things is we started giving people numbers, listeners numbers, like you would the Australian cricket team. There are more people that have received numbers since our last episode, and the number is allocated once we realize that you are listening. So we've got Liz at 19, Simon, who had a few emails with Mick. You come in at number 20. Listeners, if you're listening and you haven't got a number, it's because you haven't told us you're on board. And you're part of the team. It's just you're not an official part. Kat Jerome or somebody, 21. Pete Huff, 22. Shane Ishiv 23. I know Shane. I know these using last names of another people. Marty, don't know. Oh, no, he's the other podcast guy, 24. Marty Groman, yep. yep. Jem Louise, 25. Catherine O'Shea, 26. Brad Smith, the entrepreneur guru, 27. Took him 27 people before he decided he should jump on board. Come on, Brad. <laughs> Kylie Harker, 28. <laughs> Nikki Sarek, 29. Chrissy Jenkins, 30. Luke Calloway, 31. Melissa Doherty, 32. Keisha, Janesh's wife, 33. Matt Reese, 34. Matt, we think you were listening earlier, but we only worked it out later. <laughs> so we it at 34. <laughs> Danny English comes in at 35. He only really listens because he got interviewed.
0: Well, no, he's been a solid listener, but I realize he should have been further on the batting order as well because he came on board o- earlier, but... Some of these folks who have just sort of been walking through and I think we've got the order figured out from here on out because if we haven't got you in there and you've clearly reached out to us and we didn't realize this, we haven't actually grabbed everybody on the Facebook page yet because we're just not sure, but definitely get in touch and you can do that. Best place to do it that we absolutely know you're listening is through the website Risking Failure. You can subscribe and I'm going to be dead honest, we're not actually doing a whole lot with that mailing list yet. We are going to be sending stuff out in the future, but maybe this episode we can talk a little bit more about the amount of stuff we're trying to do and not maybe executing on all of it just yet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And also do check out the webpage because it's the ugliest webpage on the planet. And I think it's important that you witness that in an era where everyone's trying to, you know, look more than they are. We are authentic. (laughs) Mate,
0: I'm so glad you brought this up because I was listening to last week's episode and you, um, you obviously brought that to everybody's attention. So thank you. And I did put this website together. I did buy it as a theme and uh, just sort of populate it as best I could. The problem is, you know, I've been kind of copying a lot of flack for the look and feel of it. Problem is, I just, I don't know any graphic designers. Do you know any graphic designers at all? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know anybody that's been skilled or schooled in the world of graphic design at all, I wonder? No? No? idea. <laughs>
1: Well, okay, to bring our listeners up to speed, I am a qualified graphic designer, but I was not a good one, Mick. I'm better at what I do now. That's why I had to give it up. No, Mick, I don't want to put you to shame. If you've got to work on that and then I come and do the page, it could make you feel inferior. I don't want to make you feel... Less than you already feel. So it's just better to be not involved on the outside, take no ownership, and then then just kind of come in later on as the critic. You know, I understand. Listen, we agreed. When you called me, I said, Mick, all I've got is an hour every once a week to do this stuff. If you wanted me to be a graphic designer, that's a totally different conversation. But look, it is the ugliest web page on the planet. I think we should just back that in. Check it out, folks. You're welcome to have a look. And we will post a list up there progressively once we... are. Uh, and not your last names if you're freaking out, but if you want to know your number, get in touch, we'll give you a number. Speaking of last week's episode, I listened back to it, Mick, and it's not wasn't our strongest work. Yeah, I'd have to agree. So, you know, we're sorry, but, you know, we're called risking failure. So, that means we're putting ourselves out there because I listened back and oh, it was a tricky topic for me, but- one of the things I cringed about is I said, you know, that somebody referred to me and used the word love to sum me up. I was like, I nearly spewed in my mouth when I heard myself say that. I knew I'd regret saying it at the time. But oh, later on, I was like, oh, why do I do this? Why do we do this? But I guess that's just what we do. We just throw it out there, look like dicks so other people can feel good about themselves. In contrast, I guess that, yeah, I cringed. I wasn't stoked. But yeah, it's tough. Yeah,
0: I felt a little bit myself the same way there was a couple of like stories and things like that. I was like, I uh, just, I felt like there was a few things that we were talking about and I felt like I wasn't completely sure that we were on point as I was talking about some stuff and we we're sharing. And, and I, I think you just generally feel that in a conversation. You understand if you're on point and sometimes you're just searching for it and you're almost there, you're circling around something, but you haven't hit it. And I think we've kind of done that before. And if you listen to the two overwhelm episodes, the first one, I think I was still making good progress on the topic. I don't know that we resolved anything in the second one. We just sort of both came to a place where we're like, okay, we both agree that that's an uncommon thing that people don't talk about in relation to overwhelm. And there's more to it than that. As I was listening back, that's when I was gaining definition on it. I, I don't feel like it was one of those defining episodes or anything like that, but um we can't beat ourselves up. And we did kind of talk about that during the week, you know, it's more about uh, exploring things, not having answers. So.
1: It's really interesting, like doing this because we don't know what the formula is. You know, like oh, it's interesting to go, "What? Well, how the Because it's really just meant to be an honest conversation around growth. Some weeks you're going to grow more, and other weeks you don't. And I know that I'm growing more by listening back to these. Although it was funny the other day. We just released the second episode of Overwhelm, and I'm taking the piss out of you at the front at the start because I'm like, "Oh, last week had all this advice, and this week you're like, you know, yeah, now you're overwhelmed. How's it going, Mick?" And I got a text from Strutty. It's just saying, I listened to the first few minutes. I can't breathe because he knows both of us. And he obviously was loving it going. <laughs> He's just aware that I was just slamming the boots in. So um, thanks, Johnny. So the topic this week, Mick, though, you brought up was the one about just being way too busy. I'm so excited about this topic. I've got some ideas already. So why did you bring it up, though? Are you too busy? No, it's actually not been an
0: overwhelming thing. It hasn't been too busy. I've been reading The 4-Hour Week by Tim Ferriss. So it's just part of, you know, absorbing some of the information in that book has been quite intriguing and caused me to start looking at how I was spending time and realizing, I think, a whole slew of different things. But just the thing right now that I've been thinking a lot about this week is trying to get a handle on how much time I'm spending being busy and how much time I'm spending being productive and realizing that I've got a lot of time, I'm just busy doing stuff. I am not a natural-born delegator, so that doesn't help either because I sort of tend to like to get involved in things and put that physical touch to things or be, be actually Involved in my work. So it makes it very difficult for me to even see what it is I'm doing that somebody else should be doing. And even the things that I do identify, figuring out how to get to the point of somebody else doing it is in many, many cases feels like much more work than it is to just do it myself. I think it would be interesting to talk about that because I I just know that everybody is wrestling with it and we always do. So.
1: Okay. I've got some ideas on this because it's probably an area where I've tried to master, but also I go into companies and usually consult for the most senior leader. This is the first place we put our effort because we need to free up their time so that they can put the time into where they are most productive. So we've actually got to work out where their time is bleeding and why and fix that so they can put their time into something useful. Can I have a stab at the most bleeding point? Yeah. Meetings?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I'm pretty productive because I'm I'm self-employed. I have people that work with me, but thankfully all of the people that are in my company are out in the field. And so I have no interruptions in terms of anything other than phone calls and email. So I don't have meetings and that makes me far more productive than I
1: ever was in any office. There's a book that a friend of mine's dad gave me to read. It's called Parkinson's Law. And I've looked for the book again, but I haven't been able to find it on Amazon, not the original. This was This thing had – Honestly, I think- Yeah, Tim Ferriss referenced it too. Yeah. It's an extraordinary book. I honestly think that it'd been around long enough for Jesus to have carried it around. Like it's this copy was had dust on it, it looked like something out of Ray's Lost Ark or something. And the new yeah. ones, they're not as good, but this was extraordinary. And one of the things it said, it says, if you have a meeting about trying to work out what nuclear power plant or who should actually be the provider, put this nuclear power plant in at the end of, you know, in your suburb or wherever, it's too confusing for people. So people just follow whoever seems to know. But then in the same meeting, if you go, oh, next week we're going to have the meeting at a particular hotel because, you know, they can give us this particular deal on coffee and muffins and the like, everybody will jump in and discuss that because people have a reference and understanding of coffees and muffins. But so a $200 billion product won't be as discussed as much as where we should have the next meeting. And this is one of the vulnerabilities when we're having meetings is, whether or not people actually understand the topic enough for it to be discussed in a potent way, that's where time bleeds because we discuss things that everybody's got an opinion on. So as soon as you hit a topic that everybody can relate to, that's when you get everybody participating. And it's a time killer. And there's a few other laws that it refers to, and which will probably come up during this conversation. But if we wanted to start clearing out time, I've got a couple of theories that might be worth entertaining. I actually believe that there is a percentage of your week that is available for productivity and the rest of it is not available. So if you think about sleep, if you sleep eight hours a night, if you do, most people would probably sleep a bit less if they're a parent, I guess. But if you sleep eight hours a night, well, that works out to be roughly a third of your week. I would also propose, like there's a point where you can't sleep anymore and there's a point where you can't sleep any less, but there's a the amount that's just right. I'd actually propose that if the 40 hours in your work week There is a percentage of those that you can consistently be potent at. And the rest of that time, it's not going to be potent. And so if you try to increase it, say of 40 hours, 12 to 15 hours are really potent. I'd be surprised that if you could, say, lift it to 30 hours every week because I just don't think that's the natural state. I think there's a certain amount of the week that we're born to be productive.
0: Yeah, I don't think I disagree one bit.
1: Well, there's ramifications of that though, isn't there? Because if that's actually the case, so let's say at 40 hours a week, let's say that 15 are really productive and the rest of them are just meandering. Well, we live in a world where we get paid for the number of hours of work we do. But everybody knows they've, they can get paid for an hour and have done nothing in that hour. So, the, the company wants you to sit there for 40 hours, but you don't actually need to be there for 40 hours in the week, really. That's precisely it, yeah. Yeah. So, what we've got to do is just make sure that we are doing that productivity. And then we've also got to look at the rest of the week and go, well, what do we want to do with the rest of that week? And so, we usually just get busy just to fill the time. But we don't know we're doing that. So, I've got an experiment I'm doing next week. It seems like it's probably time to bring it up.
0: I'm going to start by saying I realize that I'm fortunate enough to do this experiment that some people may not be able to, but that's what I'd like to talk through is how somebody could do something similar to this. So next week we've got a bit of stuff going on, but not a ton in terms of things that I need to be at with, you know, field guys and stuff like that. So I'm just going to work five half days. So that means I'm going to start my day at midday each day and finish at five. The reason I've chosen that is because that to me is when really the heavy lifting of the day gets done in terms of people getting back to me on stuff. And, you know, I just, I always feel like the beginning of a day is just, you know, what's coming in for the day. What's my day going to be like at nine thirty? you finally figure out what it is that you really, if there's anything urgent you need to be responding to. So my plan is to next week work from 12 to five or five days, unless I've got something urgent that I need to flip at the other side on, but I want to remain committed to that. And then see in the following week, If I can wipe out responding to any email until midday, like as in just checking email, like checking on an iPhone, I think it's like it's just one step at a time for me, but I don't get a ton of email between those hours. But if I can just like completely remove myself from that, the idea for me would be I'm pretty certain I can get the same amount of work done in half the time because when I'm showing up to the office, I'm going to be hard pressed to get everything done, but I'm going to be focused And that's it. That's what I'm doing next week.
1: What do you reckon? I love it. And this is going to embody a few fundamental principles of time. Parkinson's law also refers to a task will always take as long as the time you allocate to it. So if you've got four hours to work on a, a document or you've got 40 minutes, that's just how long it's going to take. So when we do not give a task boundaries, it just keeps bleeding. And I may have said this before, like... I say in my presentations all the time where what makes a swimming pool a swimming pool is not the water, it's the walls. Because if you take the water away, it's just an empty pool. But if you take the walls away, there is water everywhere and there's nowhere to swim and there's nowhere to sunbake. There's just damp everywhere. And a lot of people have that in their lives because they don't have boundaries about when they are, for example, on their phone and when their phone is turned off. So I know that when I'm with people who are really important to me, my phone gets turned off. Now, I'm not trying to be gung-ho about that, but I'm creating that contrast so that I can be fully present with people. But it's very common right now where people bring home their laptop and they work on their computer in front of TV and they're not really being very productive at all. They're just letting their work time bleed into their social time. And as a result, they don't really have play time where they feel really fueled and close to people and they don't really feel like they're being very productive at work. It just feels like they're all just, you know, they just bleed into each other. So when you go and reduce it to five hours, You're one, you're basically saying, I'm going to just get everything done in that time. So I'm just not going to fluff around. That's the main one. So the focus goes through the roof. Yeah, because the reality is if
0: you, whatever, you get sick tomorrow, if your kids are sick and you have to stay home for the day with them and you get nothing done that day, you still just get everything done. And I know that there's exceptions to all of that. And I know it's not that simple. And in particular, I want to pay respect to the fact that there's many people in the work environment who are working for somebody. So you don't have that freedom to just say, I'm just going to work half the week next week. But there is other stuff I think we could talk through that could be done and then maybe get onto other stuff as well. But mm.
1: Well, I think that in a workplace, if, if, if somebody is working for somebody and they want to experiment with this, the way to start is to just note down When you're productive and when you're just there, nothing's really happening, you're busy. And it's as simple as every time you do a one hour of productivity, just put a little mark down on a notepad and go, that was one hour of productivity and just get a sense of how many hours a week are you being productive?
0: Yeah, but have you seriously ever done that? I mean,
1: I haven't. Yes, I have 100% I've done that. I've done it a few times because when I was young and had started the business, I couldn't understand where my time was going. Time was just bleeding. So I started to keep track of it. And because I used to work from home, everybody knew I was home, so people would drop in all the time. And I realized that about two-thirds of my week was social and I wasn't in control of it. So I've absolutely done that. Usually people just need to do it for a day and they can see the pattern. But what we're trying to look for is how much of your week is actually productive, not so that you can increase it so that you don't have to feel bad the rest of the time. That's what happens. There's a guilt comes in. You go, oh, I should be working. I should be doing this. And it's like sleeping. You don't walk around going, oh, I should be sleeping more. We've well, got eight hours. Like you're not, You don't need to feel bad that you're not sleeping for 15 hours. So we're just trying to find our natural rhythm. Well, what I think I'm trying to
0: get to with this, I'm only a quarter of the way through this book that I'm reading of Tim Ferriss, but is to try to see how much I can reduce it down. I've sort of done this many times before anyway because I've had stuff like trade shows. When you have three days out of the office but you still just keep up and those last two days of the week are highly productive. So I sort of don't even feel like I'm pushing a threshold. I'm just in some ways checking it. But then I think what would be interesting is to get to the point where I feel like I can't reduce it anymore anymore. And then to be able to figure out a way to take stock of what's in that time, if it's two days, for example, what's in those two days that I absolutely have to be doing and what's in those two days that somebody else could be doing so that I could get to a point where I could turn it into maybe one day. And the idea for me is not to be working one day a week. It's just to push somehow to push myself to figure out what other people could be doing so I can free up more time to do the things I should be doing. And have more time to think about what those things are.
1: Yeah, this is very important. Where We're not actually saying there's a four-hour work week. Like when he says that, you know, can you just work four hours a week and all that kind of stuff, I'm not a believer. I'm not. I get the model. The model says, can you be so potent in your four hours that you get the rest rest of the week to do what you want? Well, what he's also done is he spent a lot of his life working far more than four hours so that he can do that now. So I think the the model to go for is – Yes, you're going to reduce it down so that you can go, right, this is what I need to do. Then we've got to go, well, what are we doing with the other time? So, for example, England. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Because so that, you've still got this time. We don't want it to be a nothing time, but we might want to go from 5 o'clock onwards, I'm just with my family. Or we might go at work, 15 hours due to productivity, say another 10 hours might be allocated to meetings with people that I think some sort of relationship could really help us. And another five hours might go to responding to emails. And you start to get this sense of where your time goes so you don't have to feel bad and you can feel deliberate. I was going to say, before
0: we get too far about that's part of the other part of the experiment for me is taking stock of how I feel about it. Because yesterday, I sort of started a little bit. I had an early morning meeting. Everything went quick and well, and I was done by eight o'clock. And... So by 9.30, you know, I'd gone and looked at something else along the way and had, I was like, well, I don't feel like I really need to get to the office because if I go there, I'm just going to do meaningless work. I'm going to find things to do, and that's dumb. So I'm not going to do that. I looked at a little list that I had to do, and there's three things. I know I can get that done in an hour to an hour and a half. I'm going to go to the office with about you know, two to three hours. Cause I know some other stuff will come up and then I'll have plenty of time to do everything. In the meantime, I'm just going to go out and do odd things like change my cell phone plan that I've been looking to do. And those are kind of work things, but it was interesting to just sit there in a cell phone shop at 1130 in the morning. And I felt like I shouldn't be there. <laughs> But I was like, "Oh, it's okay." Like, it felt like one of those days when you're kind of you're recovering from being sick. You're not quite back to school, but you really could have gone back to school. Like that feeling, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like "Oh, come on, you do Yeah, I do. That's my whole life, Mick. Am I right to say that this is maybe something that you're a little more accustomed to because you've you haven't really spend a lot of time in the nine-to-five world or the eight-to-five world in the US. but
1: It is still difficult. You're still having that conversation with yourself. You're thinking, oh, I should be doing something. I had a good conversation with my sister many years ago where I was just working from home and I was just feeling bad. I felt like I should have been doing something. And Joe was working nine-to-five at GE or something. And she just <laughs> said out of the blue, she said, Mark, nobody actually works nine-to-five. It's so like, we're all here. We're not doing anything. And that suddenly made me click. I was like, oh, so as long as I'm productive on the things that matter, the rest of the time I've created a life where I can do what I want to do. I've had to regularly have conversations with myself to give myself permission to not be doing it how everyone else is doing it. Because in actual fact, you going down the shop in the middle of the day, that's how people want to live. But then they get scared because they're going, am I doing it wrong? That comes down to some fundamental belief that there is a right way to get life. And that comes back to that thing we said earlier in the year, that. Samsara, this this illusion that there is some way to get your life right and there is something that you must do so that you don't fail. But the truth is we're just looking to feel good. And if you have the freedom to cruise around, then cruise around. It's like what do people think? Like what if
0: a colleague or a, a co-worker or somebody either runs into me or what if they call me and they're like, what is that? Like are you in traffic or where are you? Like – why aren't you in the office or like that kind of stuff where people, you know, you just sort of, it's not like you're like wagging school and, you know, you're fearing getting caught. But I guess there is also that issue for somebody that is employed and it's, you don't have as much freedom over that time. But I I really do think there are some things to do even within the office environment that's helpful. And I I think if I was in that position that probably the number one thing I'd be trying to work towards right now is to get some time out of my week where I can work remote and be in charge of my time and try to shorten meetings and eradicate them completely. I remember when I was working for somebody before, I I didn't really have this issue because... I was also starting to do my own thing a little bit as well and I had quite a bit of away time anyway to manage projects but (laughs) I sent my boss a YouTube video off TED that was a five minute TED talk on where do you go when you really need to get something done and it was just talking about this guy has worked for 10, 15 years asking just that question to people and he said no one ever, ever says the office, it's always a cafe it's always home, it's always the library, it's always some other place other than the office or it's the office on the weekend or at night so he was saying the office is the most unproductive place to be, so I sent this to my boss saying, you know, I really think we should have some kind of a sample where we can just like experiment for a week or so and it just It We talked it through a little bit. It wasn't going to really work as great for his business, but I think that's something that's an action worth pursuing or taking. And then shortening meetings is the other one because everybody knows how much freaking time you spend sitting, talking in circles.
1: Yeah. Well, see, the other thing is we allocate an hour for a meeting, then just allocate 30 minutes and just get it done.
0: So Tim Ferriss' advice was like set the meeting time at a time that is unusual, like 320 and give it a very short, like, 15-minute window. Like, Seth Godin says, like, don't have chairs, be in a really uncomfortable room and be all standing up and, you know, just basically make it as uncomfortable place to be as possible so people don't want to stand around and talk all the time. But I've heard something interesting before with somebody, I was actually a consultant, somebody that would be in more of a similar role to you, talking to the CFO before a meeting and getting the CFO to calculate how much everybody in the room was getting paid and how much that hour cost the company. And the very first thing the consultant did was just write that on the whiteboard and said, this is how much time we're spending every minute that we're in this room. That's how much money we're costing the company. So this is, we need to get to work. So I don't know, I mean, there's hosts of different ways that people on different levels can handle that when you're in management or whatever. And I'm you're way more of an expert than I am on that. But I'm bringing context to that just because I think there's a lot of people listening that are really having to go to work and, and respond to what other people are telling them.
1: Look, I think that remote thing doesn't actually work when you ask your boss to work remotely. It will work in some industries, but it will only work If the boss already really trusts you and you've got a role where you don't need to necessarily interact all the time, but you've got to have the runs on the board. The reason they don't let people work remotely is most people don't trust people will be productive. So they don't want you to work at home. They want to be able to see you because they think you're just putting on a load of washing and the like, and half the time you are because you still don't even need to spend that much time to get stuff done. So I think another way to do it, instead of asking your boss to be remote... If there's an area of the business that you think that you would like to transition into, you could say, I reckon I can get my job done in 38 hours, not 40. Can I spend two hours a week or spread out, however, working on this particular thing that would actually have you transition into another role? Because the boss gets scared that they're going to get burnt. So you've got to work out a way so that you take away the risk. So when I work for companies, just about every single time, I will work out what is the risk that they've got and let's see if I can take it. So, sometimes they go, we don't think it's going to work. I'm like, well, don't pay until it works. And they're like, well, now we haven't got a reason to say no. So, you've got to take away the risk from your boss. And we live in a world where everybody's conditioned that you've got to work for the hour, even though an hour, you know, it doesn't make anybody any money. You've got to actually work for productivity. And we live in a world where we just don't trust each other. So, that's trickier. So, sometimes I would say, don't worry about working remotely. Just try to go, can I start to have my job evolve into a role that I actually enjoy when I'm here? That's the other way to do that. I heard a quote the other day, I thought it was awesome, and it said, we'd never have enough money for the things we don't want to buy and we'd never have enough time for the things we don't want to do. And if you feel like you do not have enough time, it's because you have a whole lot of tasks that you don't want to do. Yeah. How about them apples? Do
0: you think that's a bit different to Overwhelm though? No, because I do. Yeah, it's different Overwhelm for sure, yep. Having not enough time, I feel that's a far more regular thing that
1: at least I run into than the feeling of overwhelm. Well, the Buddhists say that busyness is a form of laziness because you never have to look up and assess and think things through. You can hide in busyness. So if we walk around the office with a cup of coffee in our hand, people think we're lazy. If we walk around the office with a piece of paper in our hand, we must be busy. And I even had a friend who was called in. To, he's a, he works for a very big company huge company. And he's very important in that organization. And he got pulled aside because they said he just wasn't working hard enough. But it really was that he does things from such a calm space that he just doesn't look busy. And busy is like a trophy. It's like we get proud of how overwhelmed we are, but busy is the enemy. It's so stupid. So, he was shattered and he was telling me about it. And I said, this is what we're going to do, mate. Let's for the next- two or three weeks until your next meeting with them, write down everything you work on during each day so you've got a solid list. So he went into the next meeting and he showed them everything that he'd been working on for the last three weeks and they apologised and they were absolutely shocked. They said, we had no idea you were doing all this because he didn't look busy. Busy is this new thing where if it's something we take pride in. If your friends say to you, how's things at the moment, you're busy and you go, oh yeah, look, I've got so much on. But if you said, no, I'm not really. I'm just sort of meandering around. People say to you, what do you mean? Come on. Like, come on, get amongst it, get into it. Yet when people say to me, I've got so much on, I actually say, no, no, I don't. I've actually got plenty of time. Once you actually say it with certainty and comfort, people actually pause and go, really? How'd you do that? Busy is, is... Stupid.
0: Yeah, place so much more emotion over it too, you know, like, oh, I'm slammed or I'm like absolutely crunched or have you know, and people take pride in that, you know.
1: Look, another reason people can feel busy is, and we talked about this another time, I think. but the human brain can basically accept seven things plus or minus two as a general rule. So, I think I've said before, if I offer you three pieces of fruit and say, just choose one you like, it's easy. Give you a whole room of fruit from all around the world and say, just choose one. It's too much. So, what can happen with busy is as soon as our to-do list or really a to-do list is a series of obligations, things that we think people need from us or want from us, as soon as we write a list, that has got more than seven things. As soon as we're working on one project, we feel bad because we feel like we should be doing those other things. When really most of the things on your to-do list move to the next day and to the next day and the next day. So, therefore, they can't really be potent. They're not essential. Like eating lunch or eating dinner doesn't get moved till three weeks from now. You might have a late lunch, but you eat lunch because it's bloody important. So, really, if it's getting moved along, it's in a box of idealism, or it's a good idea. People might say, "Yeah, no, what do I do, I know, this is important." Okay, but if it's the direction, might be important, but that doesn't mean that that specific task is a potent way to move in that direction. And I think that's really important that people sort of go, oh, "I need my business card, or I need my web page." Or I really, you know, I should plan that holiday. And if you're not doing it, it's because your brain can see it's not the exact solution for what you're trying to achieve. And so the things on our to-do list are usually just obligations or idealism. They're not necessarily necessary and potent to what we want to move towards. When you let that soak in, that's pretty big. When you start to actually observe your week through that sort of awareness. Yeah, I tell you what, today... I've
0: done this many, many times before. I'm obviously very aware of it, but today I was really paying attention to doing one thing at a time and just trying to catch myself when I had two emails going at the same time or checking one piece of work and having an email being drafted or doing research for that email, like trying to find a link for it and just seeing how much stuff I was beginning to open up at once. And it started with lunch, where I went and sat at lunch and realized that I just needed to focus on eating lunch and not check email or do anything other than just eat lunch and be like focused on that task. Because I was like, I don't even do that. And I think that's true of so many of us, particularly people working in an office environment where you've got an email device or an internet device strapped to you now. Everybody's just checking stuff. But I felt
1: that's another area that I really want to try to do more work on. But I've got a slightly different distinction on that. I actually notice what I'm feeling, which you said earlier about some of the other examples, but what I'm feeling. And if it doesn't feel rewarding, then I go, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. Because there's a habit that comes up that... I've noticed in myself and I've seen other people. As soon as we get some time, we say, all right, what should I do? And we usually go back to our computer, we check some emails, and we look for some external stimulation. We go, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll do that. Because we don't know where to put our effort. What I've learned is that right at the start of the year on the episode about um, New Year's, we talked about goal setting and the like, I've got that all written in a book. And I find that as soon as I get a chunk of time or I get some breathing space from doing the the roles that I need to do. Like if I've got to speak in front of an audience, obviously I've just got to deliver that. But then when I come back, I'll actually go, no, I don't have to check my phone even if the messages come in. I actually give myself like half an hour downtime after a presentation just to calm down because it's actually quite intense. And I just go, I just want to be in the car and listen to the radio or be silent. And then when it's time to do a task, I'll actually go to my book where I've got my goals. I don't do it every day, but when I have that question about what should I do, I go, oh, the first thing I should do is I should go back to my goals and I look through and I, and I see things there that are worthwhile working on and they're enjoyable. And another way where I move towards that and I don't get, respond is that I only open my mail once a month. Now, granted, that doesn't work for everybody because of uh, how they're set up and the like. And every now and then I get burnt on something. But, but when I say burnt, I mean like, you know, please pay this $30 fee or $70 fee because you paid that late. It's worth it to me because I don't want to have to open my mail every day, because I don't want to live in this reactionary state. So, you actually just choose your time. And I've noticed that if I've got something I need to do and it feels overwhelming or feels fatiguing, I go, oh God, I've got to do that. Then I either, one, am I making the project too big and I can shorten it? Or two, I really don't need to work on that. That is not my life calling. That's not where the momentum is. And I'll work on something else.
0: Yeah. That's a kind of batching project, so to speak, or tasks. And I do the same thing. i I mean, I get the mail out of the mail every day, but I just open it sort of once a week and then I pay bills once a week and do all of that process for once each week so that it doesn't drag through the entire week and bring me down.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say, so it's relevant to people at home, I was working with a company. I don't know if I said this in another podcast or off air, but the company I was working for, they asked me to help the people develop goals when I first started working for them, I said, well, what do you all want to achieve? And they said, we're just working too many hours. And I said, well, how many hours less would you like to be working? And they said, oh, you know, we proposed an extra 15 hours less work a week. So they got home more reasonable hour and all that kind of stuff. And I said, all right, we'll work out what you would do with that 15 hours because that's your problem. Because they didn't have another 15 hours of personal, personally rewarding tasks to fit in. Because the person who's running marathon or training for a triathlon... They seem to fit it all in. The nature of their passion is that it takes time. And so one guy said, I'd read more. Like, well, for 15 hours? Or if it was 15 hours, like, well, what books? And they're like, well, I don't know. And so unless you actually think what you want to do instead, you'll end up just meandering through your week feeling busy. But the truth is you're not busy, you're not focused, and busy is the symptom of not knowing where you want to move towards. So, you end up following either what somebody's emailed you or you start following social customs of, oh, I should do this or I should be busy or I should whatever. And as Anthony Robbins says, you should all over yourselves.
0: Most of it, I do have a
1: plan for next week. I'm going to be at home with the kids and give
0: time for my wife to do more stuff and get caught up on things and just have a rest. And so, like that part of it, I'm not worried about how I'm going to fill my time. You know, something else I wanted to touch on was that I think you can gift somebody this, like meaning give somebody the opportunity for this. This hit me during the week. We had another blizzard here. I had three of them since I last talked to you. But um, one of them... Sorry, I I wasn't
1: listening. I was just putting my sunscreen on. Sorry, (laughs) what you saying.
0: (laughs) Anyway, I, I think one of the nights, Wednesday night, Tuesday night or something this week, we had another snowstorm and my wife was coming home and just couldn't get all the way home because of problems on the roads and stuff. So she ended up staying at my father-in-law's. And so I was home all night and able to do a whole bunch of stuff that had been just sort of on the list of things to do at home, like doing ceiling trim and painting stuff. And I just worked until 1230 at night and just got so many little tasks done because there was that window. And it's exactly what you said earlier about how you, you know, those opportunities come up and, That was like a gift of an opportunity, but also it was like the amount of time it took was the amount of time I'd allotted to do it. It could have taken an entire weekend to do that or an entire Sunday, but it just took three hours because that's all I had. And I realized at the time, it's like, wow, you know, if we just tried to schedule this a little bit more where for family life, if I, you know, we'd do this all the time. Or, you know, you just take the kids and you have a couple of hours and it's like the the amount of stuff that gets done in the house when one parent takes the kids and the other's able to get stuff done is astounding. And I think you can do that in the workplace, you can do it for friends, you can do it for all kinds of things to just like take hold of the thing that is getting in the way and say, I've got this for two hours, you go do the thing you need to go do, you know?
1: That's so true. And look, when we started this conversation, I said, well, the first thing I'd go into to do to help a, help a leader is to get more time. One of those things that we start to work out is we do document where their time is going and we try to work out, well, who could take that on and can we communicate it in a way where somebody else could do it how we want it done and it's developing your capacity to, to delegate. But that example you use in the family is very similar. It's like, well, hang on, if someone else can do this, then I would get this time, but I just want to contribute with this time to the company. So you don't. Some bosses they go, "Oh, I'll get all my staff to do this," and I'm going out for a four-hour lunch, and that really rubs everybody the wrong way. Now, sometimes a four-hour lunch is worth it, depending on who you're dining with, but. If you've listened to the kids and she came home and found out you'd been asleep all afternoon, if she was worried about you, that's fine. But if she wasn't worried about you and needed some work done, there's going to be hell to pay. But this fundamental awareness is if we can empower the people around us to do things that help us, but we can use our time to help them in return, then we make real progress. And one of my clients, Dave, when we first started working together, he was just a mess. Like, you know, it was a mess emotionally. He was like, he just had so much on. Now he's playing golf twice a week. And he has more staff and he's doing more business easily. And the growth is ridiculous because we just started to go, what would be a smarter use of time? And once he started to realize, one, what he should be doing, big potent, two, what things did he keep doing over and over and over again that he just really could teach someone else to do because they were minor? And three, what were the boundaries for getting the tasks done? So we no longer wanted to have the computer on our lap after we got home from work. And having that boundary really made a big difference. And what I've even encouraged some people to do is to put a big sign on their computer saying, is what you're doing right now dumb? Because we sometimes don't ask the question whether or not this is an intelligent move to be making. Like, is this where we should be putting our time? And I think you going down and getting your phone sorted out is so smart. Like, it's so smart for someone to allocate maybe say two or three hours every six months to work out are they on the best gas plan, electricity plan, phone plan and the like, that is time well spent. So you've got more money for later. We just don't think through what do I actually want to do with my time instead. Now, granted, if you're in a workplace where it's a bloody disaster and people keep throwing you crap and expecting to respond, you should just get a different job. So people are like, oh, all my furniture, it's always soaked, it's always wet. And I go, well, maybe you shouldn't live in the tropics. Or, you know, why Why did you build in a, in a mudflats? Like, some people go, well, it doesn't work for me. I'm like, well, like, come on. There's a limit to how much genius you can put in. You, at some point, you've got to actually look at the environment you're in and go, is this environment conducive to me being at my best?
0: Look, reducing that time... I think there's two distinctions. I feel like it's a path toward getting better at delegating. And I think first, before trying to master the delegating part, I think it's about cutting out the stuff that doesn't even need to be done. So, you know, it's it's useless for me to try to delegate somebody sorting through all of the business cards and stuff that I've ever obtained and like trying to figure out a whole system for how they should be sorted so I can figure out how to like, because if I'm not going to do anything with it, then what's the point? You know, so whereas I look at that in my office and I go, oh, someday I should like go through all of that and like put it all in an Excel spreadsheet or something. It's like, oh, if I need to get a hold of somebody, I'm just going to find them. <laughs> you know, like, that's,
1: that's right. That's so true.
0: It, so I was like, ah, uh, I just ended up getting an envelope. And I just stuck it on the wall and I just throw them all in there and they're just, they're just, it just says contacts. That's it, you know. And I just know that if somebody I ever talked to three years ago and I'm just searching and go through that, but it's been out there for eight months and I still haven't opened that envelope to <laughs> find anyone's name yet because I'll find them, you know.
1: So true, Mick. And here's a couple of little bits of gold on on that for people. If there's a task that we just keep moving on, we typically just don't need to do it or we've made it too big. Like, you know, when you want to go through your receipts or whatever for the government, you better just whack them in a box, call it 2012 or whatever it is, and just putting them in the shelf and just going, look, I'll do it when I actually need to. If it's a project like painting the fence or something like that, and you go, no, I really do want to do it, but just keeps moving on. The, the truth is that we can either be making it too big or there's other tasks that we haven't resolved yet. And because we haven't resolved that yet, the truth is, although we want to do it, it's not high on the priority list. So we need to get those other things done. Like my classic... The classic is my dad cleaned the house spotless so that we could rent it out years ago. And then we came back from his holidays. He cleaned his car and he's never cleaned his car in his entire life, but there was nothing else to do. He had no other work around the place. So now he moved on to the cleaning the car because all these other things have been ticked off. But I think with the delegation one, one of the mistakes that people make is that they delegate out the things that they should really do. Because when they're busy, they go, oh, geez, this needs to get done. I'll just need some help with it. But the truth is, Sometimes we delegate things that we think are easy so that someone else can do it and we're prepared to do the hard things where often the things that we find really difficult, it's someone else's joy. Sometimes we're doing the things that really someone else should do and we delegate the things that we should really do and we we get them wrong, we switch them over and so I encourage people to actually switch things.
0: For an entrepreneur, I think the two that are the most obvious to me would be sales and bookkeeping. I think there's probably a lot of people that do the bookkeeping and they do the finance stuff and they sort through it all because they feel like they're the only one that knows it all. And then they hire somebody else to do the sales and pretty soon they're miserable.
1: Yeah. So let's look at that. So they go, I'm the only one that knows it. Now, Dave, I talked about earlier, he had that challenge and I said, well, hang on, Let's actually allocate some time to teach someone all that you know about this, your decision-making process, because there's patterns. So, I used to book my own flights because I was the only one that could work out, you know, how it works. But then I realized, no, what I'm doing is I'm allocating. I need 45 minutes to do this. If if it's during the winter, I need to allocate an extra half hour in case there's a fog delay. And I had a decision-making process. Now, when you teach someone your decision-making process, then you, you free up your time. Yeah, that's part one of that. Can we actually teach somebody what we know? The other part of that, a good example, was say the bookkeeping. I've got a bookkeeper and an accountant. And when I got my bookkeeper, she said, what do you want me to do? And I said, anything with a number in it. And she first wasn't sure. So she said, but hang on, but what about if I pay your bills? And like, like your bills need to get paid. You don't want me to pay your bills, do you? I said, does it involve a number? <laughs> And she was like, but that's responsibility for that. And I said, yep, and I'll give you a PIN number to the accounts and you'll inform me of what you're transacting." And, I'll, and, I, and people go, well, you know, that's dangerous. Not like, there's a limit to what size account I give access, somebody access to. But anything with a number. What actually happened in one circumstance too is that when we first started working together, I said, look, I want it all done by certain dates too. You know, you've got these little dates during the year that you've got to deliver your BAS statement by. And sometimes you've got an extra, it's like two months before you actually have to hand it in. And I hate doing that. I hate it when it's delayed, like for two months, because I want real-time accounting. I want the accounting done so that I know the money in the bank is actually what I've got. There's no government going to ask me for some other money next month that I didn't know about or that kind of stuff. And she didn't deliver on the first month. And I just called her up and I gave her a hard time. I said, we agreed. And... I held her accountable to how it needed to be done. I said, this has got to be done this way. And since then, she's been bloody awesome. But it's about telling somebody how you want it done, making sure that the first time that they make a mistake that you're supportive but you're clear and then starting to put your time in the area where only you can do it. So for me, you know, my bookkeeper could never be in front of an audience. I'm in front of an audience all the time. That's what I should do best. So I should do that more. But I thought that distinction about anything with a number in it. I think that we all need to start thinking like that. If it's not a strength of yours, then delegate it to someone whose numbers is a strength. We often hold to the things that take us forever. I've never had that problem actually. I've always just If I don't like it, I just don't do it. Well
0: there's all kinds of stuff to talk about with this topic, but speaking of numbers, I think our number could be coming up pretty soon. I think we're we're closing in on the one hour.
1: Oh really? Yeah, we are when you said now numbers coming up, and I'm like, <laughs> what do we get caught doing? <laughs> <laughs> what have you done, Nick? Or I thought you meant, Oh, there's some more listeners that like you know cut the base i said like, i didn't know what you're talking about but yes we're going for a long one today hope this is helpful to people i don't know hopefully i feel like it's a bit disjointed this stuff sometimes but there's a bit of gold in here if just try doing one of these things actually you know what with you with your week next week there'd be merit in everybody choosing one thing out of this and applying it to next week so what i'm gonna do is because i know it works for me is that when i go to my book of goals that really changes my week. So I'm going to go to I'm going to commit to doing every morning to look at that just so that any spare time is bang on potent. I'm going to have a wicked week next week as far as productivity goes. You you're going to do your 5-hour work weeks or 5-hour days? Mhm. Not my 5 half-hour days. Yep. 5 half hours
0: uh, 5 half days.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I didn't yeah. yeah. That was me. Sorry. No, that that went really well, how's <laughs> are the we? week? <laughs> You're really good at this radio thing. Me too. We're such a good team. Luckily, we called it Risking Fire because if we called it Pushing Success, we'd be pushing stuff uphill.
0: Well, I'm just glad you didn't grace us with your Buddhist uh, Asian uh, voice this week, mate.
1: That's not me. That's this other person that sticks their head in sometimes. I've got this little Asian cleaner that comes in. It's them. They're like, oh, Mr. Dobson, you are very <laughs> smart today. I like what you say about time. Now, is this your crap on the floor? <laughs> yeah, sorry.
0: Oh, uh, Mate, I think we're going to have to cut it off right there. All right. Goodbye, folks. Have a good week, mate. Talk to you
1: next week. Be productive. Thanks, mate. Say, say goodbye. Goodbye, Mick. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> See ya. See <laughs> you. You've been listening to Risking Failure. To join the community and access more free content, news, and updates, Subscribe at riskingfailure.com